It's Friday, March 12th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, How Beautiful We Were, a new novel from Mbolo Mbue explores corporate greed and the fight for a better environment. Then, it's Tough Questions with Suzanne Nossel, this week, big tech and antitrust moves, regulation that could change the internet, and the Supreme Court weighs in on a student handing out religious literature on campus. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on The Pen Pod. Novelist Mbolo Mbue is out with a new book. Pen America's Jared Jackson has our conversation. Mbolo Mbue is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Behold the Dreamers. Her latest novel is titled How Beautiful We Were. It's a gripping novel that tells the story of the struggle between a fictional African village and an American oil company. It touches on topics like corporate greed, colonialism, and environmental destruction. Mbolo Mbue joins me now. Thank you for coming on the Pen Pod. Thank you so much for having me, Jared. Um, so I'm really excited. And so I'll just get started. And um, the first question, you know, I'm wondering is your novel is set against the background of the fictional village of Kusawa, mm-hmm. where children are dying from poison caused by American oil companies leaking pipelines. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell can you just tell us when you began working on this idea and how it evolved over the course of writing it? Yes, I began working on it um, in 2002. So I guess that was almost 19 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. I began working on it. Um, This is the first thing I started writing the moment I decided to start writing. Um, And it was always the idea of what would happen if a village decides to fight against a multinational that is very powerful. And it was beyond that. It was also um, about having a community that is not only facing a multinational, but it's also located in a country that is ruled by dictatorship. So this village has to deal with um, this multinational and also having a dictator as president and, and that dictatorship doesn't really care about their welfare. And what would people do in such a situation? Um, what resources would they have with which to use to fight? Um, I grew up being very fascinated by this revolutionaries and dissidents and activists. As a child, I found them to be remarkable people. So this story came from that childhood fascination, this idea of people pushing back against systems that are way more powerful than them. And at the center of the novel is um, is one family. Um, first, the father is very involved in this fight, and then, and then the father's brother, and ultimately the fight is taken on by by, by one of the children in the family, a young girl named Tula, who decides to lead the struggle to, um, to make this oil company pay for all the, the damages it has done in their community. Right, right. So, so if, if I'm correct, then, then you started this before Behold the Dreamers. That's right. I started it way before Behold the Dreamers. So I, I wrote it um, for many years. I guess I spent about nine years writing it. And then and then one day I got an inspiration to write a story about a chauffeur and, and a Wall Street executive living in Manhattan and how their lives were affected by the financial crisis. So I thought, wow, how wonderful. I don't have to, I, I get to write something different because I've been, I've, been, I've been living in this village for so long and it felt so good to get out of it and to, um, to write this, a novel set in, in New York City, which is where um, I, I live for the most part. 
And so that, that, was, that was why I put it aside. But the moment Behold the Dreamers came out, I, I knew that I had to go back to the story because it just it wouldn't stop haunting me. The characters in the novel just wouldn't let, let me go. So I, I, I went right back to it and I spent another three years trying to finish it. That's wonderful. Um, you know, you spoke a bit about, you know, the characters and, uh, you know, the novel is told through multiple perspectives. And I'm wondering if you'd speak a bit about um, agency and the agency of your characters, you know, what led to this decision? Um, and was it important for you to allow the people, um, the people being the community and individuals, um, specifically also like children um, mm -hmm. who were affected by this foreign corporation to tell their own story? Yes, yes, absolutely. It was very important to me. Um, I mean, I think we are all tired of hearing um, stories being told from a perspective of people who are not at the center of a particular struggle. So it was important mm -hmm. to me that, that, um, that I go there and be with these characters and really um, uh, present to the reader what their lives are like. Now, I haven't exactly lived in a place like that. So a lot of it was research. I, I, I've read a lot about similar stories around the world. Um, right. It was very important to me that, that the characters um, tell their story and also for, for their world to be celebrated, for, for, for that, um, these worlds are since we disappearing in, in, a very, uh, in a very different world. Places like Kosawa are, are, are not as common as they used to be, say, when I was a child. Um, I, spent mm -hmm. my, I spent my early childhood living in African villages. My mother worked in community development, so I got to live in two different villages as a child. And I thought it was wonderful to, to grow up in a village. And so I wanted to also celebrate that life, that lifestyle, and, and also to tell the stories of what it's like to be involved in a struggle. Like I mentioned earlier, I am very fascinated by, by protesters, by movements from, from civil rights movements to anti-apartheid movements, to Standing Rock and Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, all of these protests fascinate me. And I thought to myself, what if I put a lot of elements of all these different movements, what if I put them in one location and show what it's like for the people involved in this fight to show how it affects their marriages, their friendships, their relationships with different members of their communities. Um, and so that, that was a big part of it. But again, this is a novel that, that I wrote over the course of 17 years. So during those 17 years, I, I got to, to, to the, the novel evolved a lot. Um, ultimately, I told a lot of it from the perspective of children because I wanted mm -hmm. to um, explore what it's like for children growing up in a world that, that, is, that has been so decimated by corporate greed and how that affects them and how, um, and, 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 and how they grow up to question the world and certain decisions that they might take as a result of growing up in such a world. Right. And so, I mean, you spoke about, you know, speaking about the children and um, and thinking about thinking about the novel and, you know, their experience in going up against, uh, you know, a mega corporation. Mm -hmm. um, children are also, you know, we, we've talked about them a lot as we, you know, we're thinking about the environment and, mm -hmm. you know, um, in your novel, you know, um, you know, we can, we continue to see outside of your novel, but in your novel, we see the, you know, the effects of environmental destruction on both mm -hmm. humanity and nature. And um, can you speak a bit about the responsibility that we have um, you know, not only take care of ourselves, but the environment too, and how you sought to explore this thread and um, this relationship in the novel. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a scene in the novel where the children are talking about the world in which the ancestors lived, because the, before the oil company came, the ancestors lived in a clean environment. They had, um, the rivers were clean and, and there were no oil spills and everything was 
had this simplicity to it. And now they're living in this world where, you know, oil spills happen all the time and the gas flares and the rivers are covered in toxic waste and children are dying of, of strange diseases. And so that is the price we have to pay um, for, for, for not being very careful about the environment. And that is what, um, that is what the characters in this novel are trying to, to fight for. They're trying to fight for the right to live in a clean environment. And, and that is a very basic human right. Um, but the, 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 their main concern is not a big global movement. They are not concerned about how to mm-hmm. make the world recognize that you know environmental justice is a huge issue. Their concern is just the fact that they just want to be left to live alone on their land. They just want to be left alone to swim in clean rivers. They just want to be able to to, to go to school without worrying about uh, about getting getting the disease from playing during recess. It's very simple, ordinary concerns that they have. And so um, I, I, I wasn't trying to, you know, I wasn't writing from a point of having an agenda about making a point about environmental justice, even though that is very important to me. It was more important that I told, just told the story of these characters and what it is like to live in a polluted environment and what it's like to come across against really, really big odds and what is involved in fighting to to right. have a clean environment right right um and in terms of thinking about just being and you know the kind of the simple things that that these children want um and, and and thinking about your novel you know we've been now in a in the pandemic for about a year mm-hmm. and um you know your novel was originally scheduled to be published last year um and there was a delay because of the coronavirus pandemic mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i'm just wondering what the past year has been like for you and you know, with your you know book book tour um, going going to be with your book tour beginning soon. You know, are there mm-hmm. elements that you think that you'll miss due to our virtual world? There mm-hmm. are there opportunities that you think are benefits to the virtual format in terms yeah. of getting your book out into the world and connecting with readers. Right, that, that's a good point. I mean, so this time last year, I I believe it was around this time last year, I was speaking in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I flew to Nashville, Tennessee in the morning and I spoke and then I flew back in the evening. And and I was feeling so exhausted from all the traveling. I'm thinking, oh gosh, you know, I would so love to not get on a plane anytime soon. But I knew that wasn't the case because my book was supposed to come out a few months later. But then the right. pandemic happened. And now I um, I will be very happy the next time I get on the plane. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> and I don't even love flying like some people do. I I but but yeah, it has been it has been um it has been a process of 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 learning right, learning learning our our uh, our capacity as humans, what we can what we can put up with. Um, for me as a writer, my book being postponed was difficult for me because this is something I've been working on for so many years. And just when it was about to come out, then it didn't come out and it was moved, it was moved another nine months later. Um, but it has given me a time to to step back a little bit. I have been reading a lot, um, a whole lot of books and and I um and I, I am slowly getting to enjoy doing the virtual events. That yes, there's there's no substitute for standing in front of a fellow mm-hmm. human and talking to them. I I definitely miss audiences. I miss um, even the people who stand up doing events and critique my work and tell me what they didn't like. I miss them already, you know. So, <laughs> uh, but the the but every you know I am also enjoying not you know traveling as much. So it is. Um, 
I'm finding the balance of appreciating this moment as while also looking ahead to when um, when I can get back and stand in front of people again. Yes, I, I think we're all, we're all we'll all be happy when we can all be in a room <laughs> together and feel the energy of everyone. That's um, right. You mentioned you mentioned that um that you've been reading a lot. Can you do you mind sharing what you've been reading? Uh yeah, so what did I just finish reading? I mean, right now I'm reading a book called Heads Argentina by a writer named Daniel Lodo. Mm -hmm. it, it is a debut novel. I'm also reading a memoir um uh, called Dog Flowers by a writer named Daniel Geller. Um, I'm also reading Obama's memoir <laughs> because mm -hmm. that is a great one to be reading right now. And I am very excited about um, Kazuo Ishiguro's book because he's one of my favorite writers. So I'm going to order that one as soon as it gets here. And Bolo Mbouye is the author of How Beautiful We Were, an urgent and deeply moving novel. Again, Mbolo, um, we thank you so much for joining us. Um, yes. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so um, much for having me, Jared. This was such a pleasure and an honor. And now for Tough Questions, our weekly standing appointment with PEN America CEO Suzanne Nossel to answer tough questions about free speech from the past week. Suzanne joins me now. Hi, Suzanne. Hi there. So I want to start, you know, the New York Times reported this week that, you know, despite a lot of promises on the campaign trail from both President Biden and former President Trump, Congress uh, now seems less inclined to revoke Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which, as you know, shields Facebook and Twitter and others from legal action for content posted on their platforms. It seems lawmakers might be going for a more piecemeal approach, maybe targeting paid content rather than all content protections. You know, is this a walk back by the Biden folks? And is this realistic in terms of protecting free speech while also stemming disinformation, which is a real threat? Yeah, well, look, I don't think anyone really believed they were ever going to repeal Section 230 entirely, although they did say that it was always sort of clear to those who have any knowledge base on this issue that that was unrealistic, too extreme, would hobble the internet. And, you know, the most, even the, the, the most serious experts uh, who address the harms of online content really haven't advocated that, a wholesale repeal. And so, you know, in a sense, while that language was used, I don't think anyone really credited it. And most people expected things to proceed more or less as seems to be happening, which is an examination of a set of proposals for how to pare back and reform Section 230. And so, you know, this is what I always expected would happen. It was clear that the regulatory momentum was building. There was some bipartisan support. There were these uh, examples from Europe and elsewhere that American legislators were paying closer attention to. So things are, I would say, proceeding more or less as expected. And there are a number of proposals on the table. The one that you reference uh, is, is called the SAFE Act, and it's been introduced by Senators Corono, Warner, and Klobuchar. And it does target paid content. I, you know, I think the thrust of it is intended to be paid advertising on the platforms, although some critics are arguing that the way it's currently worded, it could be construed as more as broader than that and to encompass any content that 
is sort of linked to a, a, a paid transaction, for example, with a, uh, an ISP or a server provider. So, you know, the language may not be perfect as is. I think the idea of trying to hone in on advertising and paid content is a good one. It's something that we supported, uh, you know, in our report on disinformation that there's, you know, the idea that there should be a higher standard that is applicable to the platforms when they're in a transactional relationship, a, you know, a client to advertising platform relationship, that it's fair in that instance to accept, uh, impose a higher burden of due diligence. You ought to know who you're doing business with, uh, who's paying you, who, you know, is there a beneficial owner, uh, you know, somewhere hidden in the shadows. What is the message? Is the message, uh, you know, one that is misleading or deceptive? And, you know, there are rules of that sort for print advertising in terms of, uh, you know, for example, pharmaceutical ads and what they can and can't, the claims they can and can't make. Uh, you know, there, there are truth in advertising laws that apply. So the notion of extending that to the online realm has been on the table for some time. And I think it's, it's, it's overdue. Uh, you know, whether this particular draft needs to be further honed, uh, you know, that's that's possible, that it's not perfectly constructed. But I think this is a, a pretty reasonable place to start. You know, one reality of all of this is that no one really knows how the reform of Section 230 would play out. And there's a lot of sort of doomsday purveyors who argue that any change to the shield, uh, the liability shield for the platforms is going to sort of destroy the internet as we know it, and the platforms will go way overbo uh, overboard in terms of suppressing content, deleting content for fear that they could be held liable for it, that it might really gum up the works in that platforms would have to uh, undergo or websites blogs would have to undergo legal review before they could be posted, sort of interfering with the real-time immediacy that the internet offers us. So, you know, there are a lot of worries out there. I don't think they're all baseless. I don't think they're all well-grounded. I think the, the fact is we don't know a lot about how changing sort of the, the, the fundamental gear structure that underpins the internet, including Section 230, how changing that is going to uh, uh, shift the incentive structure and what the behaviors of platforms and users are going to be in the wake of that. That is, you know, sort of inherently as something of an unknown. You can predict, you can extrapolate, speculate, but uh, until we implement some of these changes, we won't actually know. And so I think we have to look at this, you know, sort of as something of an experimental phase, you know, and I would, I would uh, support adopting some of these reforms on a sunsetted basis. Let's try them for a year, for 18 months, for two years, and see how they work out. What, and, and make sure we're studying that, that researchers have the resources and the access and the transparency from the platforms that is needed to really be able to tell us uh, you know, what, what changes ensued as a result of these reforms. Right. I mean, and, and there's sort of two things at play here now, because there's the Obviously, lawmakers in Section 230 and and that route, but then we're also seeing that you know this week the the Biden administration indicating it's actually bringing in two um, tech experts um, who have been big critics of Silicon Valley into the administration, who have at times potentially advocated for breaking up um, the big tech 
companies. Is breakup, does that in any way you think protect free expression? Not necessarily. Look, the reasons that antitrust enforcement is on the table with respect to big tech companies, and it's not just social media platforms, it's Google, the search engine, it's Amazon, which now controls such a vast you know, dominion over our e-commerce. So the concerns that have driven that movement you know, are not really principally about content itself. They're about anti-competitive behavior. They're about Facebook's track record for uh, swallowing up just innumerable, you know, hundreds of different potential competitors and being able to, you know, then control not just so much of our discourse in terms of, you know, sharing and communication that people do on Facebook, the platform, but, you know, all kinds of uh, vertical integrations of other types of apps and services, uh, you know, both for businesses, for consumers, you know, that contribute to the backbone of the internet. So they've kind of just sprawled in so many different directions. And the same is true, you know, for each of those companies. And so the, the fear is that Silicon Valley has become just too locked up in a few hands, and that is going to impede uh, innovation and change because these companies will be complacent. That's going to disserve consumers because there's not enough competition for people to innovate new offerings, to uh, you know, offer better incentives or pricing to consumers. And so you know, those are the concerns that are driving this move toward potential antitrust uh, enforcement. You know, I think there is a feeling that one thing that compounds the problematic propensities of, uh, for content online, things like disinformation, online harassment, the spread of terrorist recruitment, you know, uh, COVID-related hoaxes and, and conspiracy theories, the various harms, harms that we associate with online content, you know, I think people feel are worse because this, it's such a small number of platforms that control so much content. And so if you have you know, a QAnon conspiracy theory that gets seeded on Facebook, it can just propagate so widely because Facebook itself is so vast. Uh, you know, but it's also true that you know, when it comes to, for example, online harassment, Twitter is you know, a, a real locus uh, and a sort of cesspool of misery uh, for, for journalists and writers, and it's an issue that we work on extensively at PET America, but you know, I don't think anyone's accusing Twitter of being a monopolist. So yeah, you know, I, it's not clear to me that if the, the, the most obvious solutions for breakup, which I think kind of would attack these companies vertically rather than horizontally, I don't think they would say to Facebook, you know, of your um, billions of users, around the world, you've sort of got to cut that group of people in half and half of them go to you know, the face bat platform and half of them go to the book platform and the two can never meet. I don't think that's going to be the regulatory answer here. And sort of without that, it's not clear uh, that the, the, the content related problems that we are most concerned with you know, really have, a, have resolution through an antitrust channel. Well, Suzanne, last question here. I'm going to ask you to put your lawyer hat on. Uh, a Supreme Court uh, decision this week uh, that overturned two lower court rulings. Um, they said that a Georgia student could seek damages uh, after his school prevented him from handing out 
religious literature. Uh, you know, the school actually walked the decision back. The student is no longer a student. It doesn't seem the student has suffered economic damages. Why is it important that the court ruled this way? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, it's sort of a strange ruling and, uh, you know, ultimately didn't really hinge on a free expression issue, although the underlying case, uh, you know, and fact pattern was, uh, you know, about distribution of literature on a campus is, is certainly a free expression issue. But the, so the claim that the university made basically was that the, the case was moot because uh, the action had been reversed and, you know, essentially the conduct was over with and not ongoing. And normally in, in the courts, you know, there's a requirement of a, a live case or controversy. So if a matter is mooted, uh, you know, do any, any number of circumstances, it could be because somebody died, because somebody's left office. For example, in the case of uh, our own lawsuit against Donald Trump, that was moot after he left office. So there are all kinds of, re the conduct can just come to an end and that can moot out a lawsuit. And, and the Ruling in this case was that because the plaintiff had uh, a claim for nominal damages, he sought one one dollar in sort of uh, symbolic damages from the university. That that claim was a basis uh, upon which the lawsuit could proceed. Uh, that if you, as long as you had that damage claim in there, uh, the lawsuit was mooted out by the change in. Conduct, although you know there was sort of a caveat that if the university had simply paid the dollar, then uh, you know the whole case would have ended. So uh, you know, sort of a strange case and ruling, but not one that ultimately has uh, particular implications for free speech. Cool. Well, that's our tough questions for the week. Suzanne Nossel is CEO of Penn America and author of Dare to Speak: Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks a lot, Suzanne. Thanks so much. And that's our episode for Friday, March 12th. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon. Mm -hmm.